Hello, and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner. Today we are discussing a comic that really hits the target, bro. We're talking Hawkeye. Bro Celsior. <laughs> Hawkeye, man, it's not it's hard to be like to not to smile when you're talking about this comic, right? Yeah, it really is. It's one of those comics where you just see one or two panels and face just lights up. It's so charming, even when some pretty terrible stuff happens in it. Yeah, and this is my first time revisiting it in a while, and there was some stuff that uh, reads different to me now that I'm a little older, different gender, we're farther in history. I don't know. I had a new perspective on some stuff. Hmm. I feel like that's that's always a good way of encountering art. Yeah, totally. And with like something with as much to chew on as this, it's like cool to be able to um to revisit it when you are your different selves. Mm-hmm. Fucking whatever. Um Elias, how did so the Hawkeye comic we're talking about today is of course the famous run that is written by Matt Fraction. It's probably his most famous and signature book, right? I can think of another I don't couple know, of Sex Criminals is pretty big. Yeah, Sex Criminals. I can think of a couple contenders. I mean Casanova was um uh, his like signature comic series for a while. He was the writer of Iron Man for a million years. Yeah, I think of Marvel, this for sure, hands it, down, Hawkeye is is his book. It's gotta be. Um, yeah. And um, there's a lot of uh, people on the illustration team, but of course, the book is most famously dil- illustrated by uh, David Aja, as well as uh, Annie Wu and uh, Javier Polito and Francesco Francavia, who I know is one of your favorites. Yep. Steve Lieber, Jesse Ham, and Javier Polito are all artists who contributed to the series, but it's mostly David Aja with uh, some Annie Wu and then spots of the other people. Uh, it's colored by Matt Hollingsworth and Jordi Belair, and Frank Azevia always colors himself. Um, and it's lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, David Aja uh, letters issue 19 specifically, which is what we're going to talk about next week, and Clayton Cowles uh, edits the annual. A lot of creators on this one. Yeah. Quite, quite a few. I had forgotten that Steve Lieber actually did an issue in here, and it's really interesting seeing his work with Fraction in this, and then seeing his work with Fraction, what, almost a decade later in, um, oh god, uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, did that comic win an Eisner? It should've. I think it did. I think it won Best Limited Series or maybe Best Comedy. Yeah, well, that was a great series. Yeah, uh, and Lieber did a bunch of the Howard the Duck that we talked about recently. He no, he didn't do did anything. I thought he did no, he didn't do any of it. I thought he had done something funny with Zdarsky, but I might be. Yeah, my brain may be all over the place. Um, <laughs> but so Elias, like, when did you first encounter this Hawkeye comic? I first encountered it when the final issue dropped. It had been, I was, you know, that's kind of the time that I was really getting into comics and there was a sale on Comixology <laughs> when the, uh, all, all the trades came out. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I read it from the library when the final issue, when the final trade came out, mm-hmm. um, but I had first heard about it when the final issue, because there was, it had been like two years in between issue 21 and 22. Yeah. This was like one of those like holy grail books that just needed to finish and everyone was waiting with bated breath. Um, they released a big bundle and I was like, eh, I can get it another time. And then I read it in the library and went, I need to own this. And then I bought the trades digitally. Um, what, around what, the, so 
when did it? Uh, when did the series start wrapping up? Because, like you said, there's it was a big time uh, between, between the beginning and the end. That's a good question. It started I in see. August 2012 is when issue number one came out, and the last issue came out issue number 22, uh, July 2015. Yeah. So say it's not as long as it felt like, but at the time it felt really long. Considering it's 22 issues and it lasted over three years. Yeah, 22 issues is, should be a little more than two years, not like three and a half. It's not quite astonishing X-Men levels of delayed. No. But pretty um, intense. So, Eliza, have I ever told you about where I was when this comic came out? No, I don't believe you have. All right, so it's summer 2012, and um, I am graduated from college and looking for a job. And on a whim, while I was looking at some comics on the shelf, I applied to work at uh, Midtown Comics in uh Mm-hmm. And I, I went over to Times Square, and I got hired, and they hired me for uh, the uh, Grand Central location. And yeah, I know the one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went in like a week before I was supposed to work, just to talk to my manager and to get my uniform and just like regular onboarding stuff. And I picked yep. up a couple of comics while I was there to take home to read. It was the first time I used my employee discount, and one of those books was Hawkeye number one. And I was so freshly out of college, I didn't have a home yet. I was uh, sleeping on my friend's floor in Brooklyn. And wow. so I remember, and his ex-boyfriend, who he lived with at the time, which was very awkward, uh, was out mm. of town. So I snuck into his bedroom and sat on the floor and I read this first issue of Hawkeye. And I read it like four or five times on the floor right there, just over and over again. I was like, this is the greatest fucking comic I've ever read. <laughs> and then I, I worked at the store for a lot of the run. Oh, wow. Uh, but so like, uh, these are the couple of years of comic releases that I think I remember the best. Because I was selling them, and it. Start- Where were you at the end? By the end, I was already. Uh, what is it? Twenty fifteen. Yeah, mid twenty fifteen. Jesus, by twenty fifteen, I've already gone to grad school, graduated, uh, become a teacher, and then get ho- got hospitalized, lost my teaching job, and moved to the Midwest. I got, I was in the Midwest by September twenty fifteen, which is the cover date for the last issue. So really, it was like my entire. 20s out of college was this was this run Oof. i wonder if that final issue got delayed a little bit more because of secret wars um i'm sure that had to do with it so elias how much do you know now that, now that i, I tee this up how much do you remember about what was going on in marvel in 2012 oh in 2012 i think that was the marvel now the beginning of marvel now which was Oh, God. I, for the 10th anniversary of the site, we re-reviewed the first issue of every single Marvel Now book. Yeah. I reviewed a couple, I reviewed some X-Men stuff there, I remember. Yeah, and I, I can't think of a good way to summarize it, but it was just one of those big branding things, but I think it was the first of them. So the first of those big pushes. I, th- I think it was in response, maybe, to the New 52. Yeah, because New 52 uh, was just started when I was working at the shop as well. Yeah. And this is perhaps, one, one might argue, the most... Uh, successful of all of their weird eras just in terms of trying out weird shit and having as many successes as they have totally and i can think of a i can remember a lot more books from this era i mean because again i was selling them but because they're memorable and good Mm -hmm. but here's the weird interesting thing marvel now did start in 2012 but it didn't actually start till october of 2012 and hawkeye is coming Uh... out in august of 2012 Huh. So um, this was not part of the initiative. No. 
And so, right before we started recording, uh, we were talking about the editors of this book, right? Yes. There's three of them. Are you looking at it right now? I mean, I remember who, who it was. It was uh, Sana Amanat and Tom Brennan as assistant editors and Stephen Wacker as the uh, central editor. Yeah, so... From what I remember uh, from talking to people in the Marvel company and to people in the comics biz, um, this Hawkeye book was like a big initiative from Wacker. Uh, Fraction and Aja, like, I had this idea for the book, and, and they they asked them if they were interested in a Hawkeye book. They came up with this pitch, but from as legend has it, from what I understand, um, many people at the company were down on this pitch, but Wacker championed it. Oh. Huh. Um, I mean... It makes sense that it's weird to say that it makes sense that I can see other people at the company poo-pooing the the book, both from the sense, the style that Fraction brings to the writing and also the very different look of AHA's work in addition to the way that Hollingsworth, Hollingsworth colors him. It's so funny, too, because this and the... Um, Mark Wade Daredevil run with uh, artwork. Chris Samney? Yeah, with artwork by Chris Samney. Um, they, they they kind of uh, share a similar minimalism, right? Yeah, yeah. And that the became minimalism super hot there. after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like that became the, a popular and dominant style, which is crazy. Yeah, and I it still holds up. I love this style, both of illustration and coloring. It, like, in conjunction, when I first read this, I didn't notice how fantastic Hollingsworth's colors are in their flatness. Yeah. Yeah. The, fla- the flatness I've is... seen AHA's work later in like the seeds and it looks, they look like two completely different people. You're right. And yeah, and Hollingsworth doesn't get a lot of uh, credit that he deserves. He's really, there's not a lot of texture. He kind of, uh, he flattens everything out. Like, uh, these panes of glass and the sidewalk and the clothes all look like they're made of the same material, and it's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's gorgeous. There was another thing happening in 2012 that uh, really changed the uh, temperature for this book. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, was it an election? Um, in 2012, I'm sure there was an election, but it wasn't an election. It's something that happened in um, May 2012. May and that's the release of a movie called oh. The Avengers. <laughs> I'm like, what happened in May of 2012? Only the biggest thing to happen to cinemas in the last 20 years. Yeah, this insane movie came out uh, with all the Avengers that completely changed uh, culture for better and for worse, and we're still feeling the after effects of it. But, yeah. but again, so from what I understand... Um, Marvel wanted to have books coming out about the six Avengers from the movie. And and they were really big at the time of, like, um, it's a, shortly after this or around this time, they uh, reveal that Nick Fury has a son who is black and looks like Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and then he becomes the new Nick Fury in Marvel. Like, they're, they're doing all this stuff to tie into the movies in this era. And that's really apparent because you open this comic and what's the first page? Yeah, Hawkeye in his movie costume falling out of a building. And it's like the famous cool action moment he got in the comic of he's falling backwards uh, towards the sidewalk off a building in New York City and he's shooting an arrow up like towards the camera. Mm-hmm. It's just the exact shot. And it's so funny because I feel like 
the the attempt that the Marvel Corporation is putting at like uh, just doing like ugly commerce is really significant here. Like, uh, they're, they're trying to have all this corporate synergy. And then they hire just, like, two fucking psychos who accidentally revolutionized the entire comics industry. <laughs> right? It's like... It's it's so funny, and I think that's so um, emblematic of something I continue to love about Marvel Comics, is that it doesn't matter what, like, slimy, greedy, corporate uh, motivations inspire the artwork. People are always finding ways to, to further the medium. For sure, even yeah, even when you can really see those those grubby fingers working in. Obviously, it's not a yeah. Not a what? Sorry, I was gonna say it's it's a corporation, so you're gonna get probably more misses than hits. But when it hits, it hits hard. Yeah, well, and Fraction was a well liked writer at the time, but um, he wasn't definitely gonna stay in Marvel. And I guess, um, how much do you know? I don't know everything, but how much do you know about uh, the circumstances under which Fraction left Marvel and his relationship with them, etc.? I know almost nothing about it. I just know, I'm well, I know that at one point he took a, a big hiatus from comics in general because of mental health and, and that kind of stuff. But I don't know about, you know him specifically leaving Marvel. Marvel, the big two, there are always stories of, of them pissing off writers and artists and, and everyone for many different reasons. Right, and, and Fraction particularly is like such a uh, such a classic artist mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. that I, he had an artist temperament. Um, but so I want to talk a little bit about where Fraction was when this book is coming about. Okay. Because we're talking Go a little bit it. about the context at Marvel, but let's talk about Fraction's career. So at this point, Fraction's been writing at Marvel for a couple of years now, to much success, uh, mostly due to his Iron Man run, although afterwards he wrote a um, Thor run, which I think it's mixed reception. I think it's... Mm-hmm. I'd give it a mixed reception. It's Some of it's good and some of it's all right. Um, yeah, I still haven't read it. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, but in 2011, a couple months before this Hawkeye book comes out, uh Fraction was writing Thor, and Kieran Gillen was writing uh, Loki uh, in Journey into Mystery, mm-hmm. and Ed Brubaker was very famously writing Captain America. Yeah. Uh, the, the Winter Soldier run that inspired everything in culture today. <laughs> uh, Brubaker's in that movie, by the way, The Winter Soldier. He's the dude brainwashing Bucky. And that was him? Yeah, that's a fun cameo. He's just kind of like a, an anonymous-looking bald dude. That's Ed Brubaker. Huh. Um, in a lab coat. Yeah, I, one of my favorite cameos. I laugh every time I see it. Um, but So Brubaker and Fraction are buds, and they want to do a crossover of Captain America and Thor, because that doesn't happen that often. True. And they came up with like a weird story to support it, and Marvel got a wind of it, and they really liked it, and they said, okay, this is our next event. And Fraction and Brubaker are like... Nah, I, we, this isn't meant to be an event. This is just like the two characters crossing over. We don't have stuff for like the Hulk and the X-Men to do and stuff. And they're like, nah, it's an event. And uh... Yeah. And I think this was also when like the idea of event, they hadn't really figured out the uh, formula for events. So like event fatigue was hitting really hard. I mean, one might argue they still haven't, but... It was, but yeah, it was even worse back then because there was still those crossovers where every book would have to stop for three months. 
Yeah, and there would be one or two a year. Yeah. God. Yeah, so Fear Yourself sounds like it was a nightmare to write and to organize and fractions in charge of that. Um, and then they are like, uh, you're still such a good writer, why don't you do Hawkeye? And he's like, sure. And they, they produce this book. Then... The next year, Fraction is about to try his hand on revitalizing another Marvel property. Um, and in 2013, he's scheduled to lead another event called Inhumanity. And oh. this was going to be the event that uh, brought the Inhumans onto, into focus. He was going to write an Inhuman series. He actually wrote one issue of an Inhuman series uh, and then gets replaced by Charles Soule for every issue after. Yeah. Um, but that series was solicited as a Fraction written series. And that's huh. when he leaves Marvel abruptly. Like, he left them when he still was supposed to hand in scripts for Inhumanity and didn't and couldn't. And then, uh, and that's when he starts falling off the face of the Earth. And that's when the Hawkeye issues start getting crazy delayed. Oh, okay. Um, now, I like you said before, I imagine a lot of this had to do with personal issues, which we don't have to, uh, drag the guy in public because I really like that Fraction. But, um... He's definitely having mental health issues. Probably uh, I, there's a history of addiction issues. And, like, the Marvel's just being awful. Mm-hmm. It really makes sense to me that somebody would not want to work for a boss who's mistreating you and then, like, really struggle to clear your plate of the work that you still owe. That's very relatable to me. For sure. I got one other thing I want to mention in the context for this book. Okay. And that is... Um, I was just mentioning that Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction were friends who liked to collaborate. They had an earlier collaboration that got them wanting to do a crossover together with Fear Itself. And that book was with another creator of this. It's where Fraction first works with David Aja. Do you know what book that is? Oh, wasn't... I didn't I didn't know that, that David Aja did... Um, or I'd forgotten that he did the Immortal Iron Fist. Yeah, he was the artist for most of Immortal Iron Fist. And then Brubaker and Frag... And it's my favorite superhero comic ever. I think Brubaker is such a meticulous, like, like clockwork story builder. And mm-hmm. Fraction's so, like, chaotic and full of feelings and vibes that they really bounce off of each other really well. And then you put uh, Aha's style in the center, um, and it's minimalist, and it's good, and his kung fu kicked ass in that comic. Um, but these are all the ingredients that are, I guess... And the last, last ingredient I should mention is this is the climate that eventually uh, gives rise to Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, and uh, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. Like a lot of Marvel's success in um, another generation of heroes, after the ones created in the 60s, happens from these editors making being really pushy. Sana Aminat and uh, Steve Wacker in this era. So I think this era like really is the setup for everything that Marvel is today. For better and for worse. For better and for worse. I was going to say, it's sad that they did not let a lot of the really good ideas breathe and continue and allow to kind of settle into a status quo. They always seem to have some sort of end, you know, an expiration date built in, uh, kind of like a poison pill expected from the, ed- from like big editor yeah, in chief. But but it's crazy because like I, I know comic fans know this is a legendary comic and a lot of people have read it. But like this changed how the comics related to the movies. This changed how the comics were written. This changed the types of creators and the types of characters that who got stories. Like this book is really the fulcrum of um, going from 
I don't know, the dark age of the 90s into whatever the hell we're in now, the modern age. Yeah, I I don't know what they uh what we're calling it. Yep. We'll figure it out one day. Yeah, I mean, you can never figure out the name of the age you're in while you're in it. I don't know. You can always call it the contemporary age. Uh, yeah, but every every contemporary time is the contemporary age. Um, exactly. But, that, but that's I think the fun of it. Whatever was whatever age was the '90s and early 2000s, it ends in 2012 with the release of the Avengers movie in this comic. I think that it starts another like you got the the gold age, the bronze age, the silver age, and the dark age. And yeah, they you, called that. I think they called what the '90s and whatever was the modern age, kind of like how modern art gave way to postmodernism. Well, that's a that's a naming convention that never has an end. Because if we're if now is the postmodern age, what's the one after this? I don't know. We'll figure it out. But it's always current art is contemporary. I think um, I want to call it the plastic age, twenty twelve forward. Mm. I think that's where a lot of stuff gets like really cookie cutter, and you got a lot of like uh, uh, big corporate interest, and and this, these characters start getting looked at as IP. Like, I, I feel like um, it all becomes a little bit more cookie cutter and there's, like, some mad geniuses trying to to flex under the mm. yoke of uh, corporate greed. I think if we're just talking big two comics, I would agree. Yeah. But, because we've had a few, a few different pieces float around the web in the last few years that I think are, have been very interesting in terms of how we think about the current age of comics as far as usually looking at the explosion and diversity of people making comics, people seeing themselves in comics, types of stories being told, just like the la- these last 10, 15 years have seen such a radical change in that aspect of comics, visibly. There's always been underground comics, but like, just in general, it's kind of amazing. Well, yeah, the default expectation has really shifted. Yeah. What What do you think but you're term- <laughs> going to see when you walk into a comic shop? Are for you, sure. Is he going to see Batman gritting his teeth and Witchblade's tits halfway out? Or are you going to yes. be seeing, like, uh, <laughs> this gorgeous art by by David Aha, Annie Wu? I, I think we're going to see both. <laughs> um. All right, we've been given a lot of context. Do you want to go to a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about this story particularly? Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And we're back. Uh, For those of you just joining us after the break... Uh, I don't know why you would skip 24 minutes into this. Yeah, we're but... on a radio program. People aren't tuning in in the middle. Welcome to NPR. God, we wish we were NPR. We'd love being NPR. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they wouldn't let us curse as much. That's probably true. 
Uh, over the break, uh, Elias corrected my pronunciation. Uh, David Aha is uh, the correct pronunciation of the artist's name, and uh, he seems like he's more interested in you pronouncing his first name correctly, which I've never done, and I will try. I'm sure. I think you've corrected me on the air before, and I swear this time I will learn my lesson. <laughs> we're always learning, and we're always getting better. Elias, will you please turn to, I guess, the second page of the comic proper, which has a big caption, including, it's like the title page? Okay. You know the one I'm talking about? Scrolling, 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 scrolling. Yes. Will you please read this opening? <laughs> I just think we need okay. to start this opening. This opening is so clicky and clutch. It is. It's it's perfect. <clears throat> Clint Bark. Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye, all stylized, became the greatest sharpshooter known to man. He then joined the Avengers. This is what he does when he's not being an Avenger. That's all you need to know. Perfect. It's so perfect. Um, so from the vibe of this entire comic, and it's the stuff that, that Fraction was saying when it was coming out, is when he is asked to pitch a Hawkeye comic, he's like, all right, so what's Hawkeye's deal exactly? And like, what's his story? And he's like, well, I guess the Hawkeye's on the Avengers, and he's kind of like the funny guy on the team, right? He's got quips, he's got jokes, he's kind of sarcastic. But mm -hmm. but then Spider-Man had been on the Avengers for tenure at this point, and um, Spider-Man's definitely funnier than Hawkeye. And it's like, well, Hawkeye's like um, old hat at this, he's been in the Avengers a long time, he leads the team. But like Captain America is uh, the leader of the Avengers. And what Fraction realized is what's special about Hawkeye, what makes him important? Nothing. He's just like a schmo. And that's what the sensibility of this book is. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> what? The sh it was the word schmo? Yep. Um, so in the, so th this comic also does like a bunch of interesting things with time. Yeah, it's not trying to tell a story from beginning to end. It kind of just goes, all right, here's where we are. Uh, and now we're going to fracture time as much as possible, but without making it like a... It's not pretentious. The, the way we cut between scenes all reinforce each other in a way that is done for perfect comedic effect and then dramatic effect as well. It's kind of just giving a snapshot in the life of Hawkeye. This this first issue, it jumps kind of all around after his, his fall into the hospital. Um, and then we jump forward in time a little bit, and then we jump back, and we kind of see how all the events connect. And by leaving the pieces out in between, he can better, or the whole team can better create, you know, a story instead of it being just this endless list of terrible things happening to Hawkeye, you get a few bad things and then you see what he's doing and why it's good. Um, I'm thinking mostly of like the way the lucky, the pizza dog scenes play out here. In well, this first issue. Let's see, lucky the pizza dog is a, a legend. And when they said they're making a Hawkeye show, everyone was like, lucky the pizza dog will be in it. Don't worry. That was like the important <laughs> thing everyone needed to know. Um, What's interesting to me about the first issue is it's, it's fractured in time, and it's like a bunch of vignettes, like you said, but they're very deliberately uh, shattered. Um, yes. And one of the best techniques that this book uses to help us keep track of everything is with the minimalism, Hollingworth's colors uh, do so much lifting because, so he's getting out of the hospital, and everything is like a gold 
uh, the sky and the buildings are all like bright yellow. But then when we're in the future where uh, Lucky is getting surgery at the vet, everything's tinged a little blue. We jump back to the gold. We jump back to the blue. Later, there's a fun scene with a rooftop barbecue um, that's tinged red. And so mm-hmm. all these different, every scene has a uh, color to it. And that palette makes it really easy so that you know you're jumping in time. Because otherwise, I think if the if the art looked more similar, it would be much more confusing. That like uh, you don't have to say two days later. Oh, for sure. And it doesn't really matter how much time has passed, but you can also tell like all of the scenes with Lucky are at night. Um, the scene on the rooftop is kind of at, in the evening dusk hours when he's getting out of the hospital. It's more like midday, early afternoon. Um, yeah. And there's another thing I need to uh, mention about, like, the artwork in this and how revolutionary it was. Mm-hmm. This comic has so many panels. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I think everyone loves it. Like, generally speaking, artists don't want to draw a lot of panels. If they get to have to do four panels, that's way better than 32. But Yeah, I, I do think it depends on the kind of story that the artist is telling. Like, if someone has to draw huge lush backgrounds and these hyper detailed characters they want to have fewer panels so they don't have to draw the same stuff over and over again but here aha does he has so a lot of insert panels he has a lot of kind of smaller closer shots on people's faces on tops half of torsos on objects on you know just general scenery um like in issue two with the the curtains uh and because of the minimalism it makes it easier to draw a lot of these panels because you don't have to worry about making the building look like it has 700 bricks you just like here's a building it's bricked you can kind of tell you don't need to know more than that the what i think the the little panels do such a great job of capturing is um i'm flipping through it's really cinematic um, you, you've read Understanding Comics by Mr. Scott McCloud, right? I have. It's been uh, a while, but... Well, then I will remind you and the listeners that uh, Scott McCloud writes about how in comics you uh, use the size of and length of images to denote uh, the length of time. A long horizontal image that you gotta put bring your eyes across will be taking over over a long time than a bunch of chopped up panels. For and, sure. And so there's like a, the scene where Hawkeye is uh, playing cards and he gets to the table and everyone's laughing at him and then there's the tiniest freaking panels you've ever seen of close-ups of everybody's laughing faces and it's like an <laughs> Edgar Wright movie where it's just like wa-bum, wa-bum, wa-bum into people's faces really hard for maximum impact and then it goes back to the longer panels and then it goes to the really big panels when uh, there's more dialogue again but like that pace feels like a really well-edited movie like most movies aren't as well cinematic as this Hawkeye comic you can you can feel the the camera for lack of a better term moving over the scenes you can feel the the zoom you can feel essentially the the deliberateness of each of the choices in order to create an effect instead of just you know accomplish a a narrative beat to move it forward what so what's the name of the bad guys in this comic i forget are they the they're the tracksuit mafia yeah yeah, I, that's just what they're called. In this, I remember they're called the tracksuit Draculas. Um, 
maybe a couple. I've always heard tracksuit mafia, but maybe in the show it's mafia. But I think in the comic, Hawkeye says uh, Dracula's. Probably because they they were sucking the lifeblood out of the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but so they show up in this comic. I think that the tracksuit mafia is like a is is one of the weirdest things to ever happen in comics. They're so weird and like evocative, but they're just dudes with bad outfits. They're just poorly dressed dudes. <laughs> I, I, and, I love them. I think there's a reason why they've they've stuck around so much in the popular imagination within comics even though they haven't really been used so much because they're just so mundane they are just you know the mafia but they're not this big organized crime outfit you know they're they're they are also some schmoes but they have guns and they've got an organization yeah and um they're like vaguely eastern european they speak in like funny eugene hoot style broken english Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they have like just they're I guess I guess what they are is they're just like perfectly comic. They're um, they're visually mm-hmm. dynamic enough, and they have a, a an easy catchphrase. Just like it doesn't take a lot of time with them on the page before you know what they're here to do. Their their intentions sure. are really obvious. Yeah, and you don't need more than that for the story. Yeah. So this first issue introduces us to Hawkeye, uh, who's always down on his luck. He's always injured because he's just a regular guy, but he's fighting gods. Um, yeah. We meet his uh, building. Hawkeye lives in a building in Brooklyn, like a hipster. And I remember uh, the word hipster was very often used in contention in 2012. Mm-hmm. Do you recall? I do. It hadn't really had a settled meaning, had it yet. I mean... Words never do, but you know what I mean. I think uh, there was, like, an image of what the hipster demographic looked like. But Hawkeye, like, as I said, I read this comic in Brooklyn, and it's so interesting. He lives in Bed-Stuy, which is, like, historically uh, not the wealthiest part of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And he has this cool building with, like, this very diverse neighbor's... I mean, diverse in terms of both not only ethnicity, but also, like, age and uh, vocation and just all these different vibes. Um, And it's funny how much of a better job Fraction does with establishing that supporting cast than, like, people can do an Iron Man with, like, a billion cool super people, you know? Yeah. Like, Gil is one of my favorite Marvel characters. A guy named Gil who lives for, like, four issues. Spoilers. Yeah, and we're talking about <laughs> Hawkeye today. And the last, uh, yeah, the last element is Pizza Dog, and it's about all these elements coming together. Hawkeye is a schmo who lives in an apartment. He tries to do his best to protect the people who live there, um, and he gets a dog by beating up these mobsters. Mm-hmm. And it's a cute dog, and- one-eyed dog. Mm-hmm. Dog loves pizza. Dog lives in the trash. Dog's the best. Dog's the best. Yeah, Arrow. Mm, I'll think of a better name. <laughs> yeah. That One is- thing I do, I, for anyone who's seen the Hawkeye show and is now reading this, um, wondering how the, you know, that, that coin-throwing, bottle-breaking scene, how they, they use that kind of as a through-line in the show, um, it's done so much better here. And I like the Hawkeye show, but the way that little, you know, just it seems like it's just this little thing, this little joke, how they use that to button up a scene later in the issue with, with Lucky. 
I love it. It's so good. So good. It's, uh, you reminded me, it's so funny. I feel like people have been really mad for years that Jeremy Renner isn't more like the Hawkeye in this comic. Mm-hmm. But he can't be. The Hawkeye in this comic was based on Jeremy Renner. <laughs> like, Jeremy Renner was cast before this comic came out in the Thor movie, and then the Avengers movie came out bef- before this comic was released. Like, the only reason we have this beloved thing is because Marvel wanted to do a cheap Jeremy Renner cash-in. It would just wouldn't have yeah. been possible to cast somebody different because if they had been cast, then they wouldn't need to write this comic. Yeah. Um, the second issue introduces another major player, the the other most major player in the series, and that is Kate Bishop. Kate Bishop. We've covered actually not a a couple of Kate Bishop things on this show, haven't we? Yeah, we've covered a fair a fair amount of Kate. Um, we covered her origin. We've covered, yeah, her origin. Well, <laughs> I don't her think we actually com- covered more Kate Bishop comics. Um, I suppose we will, because she is in a lot of great comics. Uh, but Kate Bishop was the uh, replacement Hawkeye in our Young Avengers. If you want to know more about her deal, we had a whole Young Avengers episode, and it was good. Go back and listen to it. Um but this comic is really funny because I remember the argument of, like, who gets the mantle of superhero name was so important at this time. And Yeah, you, could, you couldn't have two of the same person running around for reasons. Yeah, and that makes sense to me because um, in terms of, of drama, you know, like having Batman the Battle of the Cowl, Captain America who will wield the shield... Like yeah. having those singular mantles be uh, be goals for the it, it makes it book like wrestling. Everyone's chasing the belt. Everyone's chasing the mask and the name. Um, mm-hmm. But I always felt like it was such a good joke that Hawkeye's like, yeah, I don't care. She could be another Hawkeye. Like like a, but everyone else is like, what are you doing? Yeah, because it's like baking, breaking the sacrosanct rule of the superhero universe. But Hawkeye doesn't care that much about rules. He's he's laid back. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's just kind of kind of rolls with the flow. This comic, um, I think, really establishes the characterization we see of Kate Bishop going forward. Uh, this, and then a couple months after this, she premieres in the Young Avengers run by Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey, uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Wilson and uh, Clayton Cowles. That's Clay- the whole team. Um, but right at the beginning of that comic, uh, the first thing you see Kate Bishop saying is she says, uh, being a superhero is fun. Everyone should try it. And I think that's the characterization from this book. She's a superhero because she's having a great time doing this and she's good at it and she's so good at it. And this is the book that always uh, made it clear that Clint thinks that Kate is a better Hawkeye than him. And he's cool with that. He's not competitive in that way. No, I mean he he kind of puts it on as a as an affectation that like he, certain things bother him, and sometimes something really bothers him, and but he he can't express it. Yeah, which it, which it makes for nice drama in between the two of them instead of like forced drama. Yeah, and this also this comic was really like uh, they had they had interacted for scenes before, but there had never been a comic about the relationship before, and. All of this felt like a big question mark going in. Like, is Kate going to be able to be in a Hawkeye book with uh, Clint? Are they going to relate to each other well? Which one of them gets the name? 
And then this book is just like, none of that matters. Just have a good time. Yep. I remember yep. I had a Facebook game around 2012, like an Avengers Facebook game that I played a lot of. Oh, dear. And um, and Kate was a character in it. Everyone was a character in it by the end. Howard the Duck was a character in it. Um, but Kate was in it, and one of her moves is she'd shoot three hours at once and uh, <laughs> and say, uh, suck it, Dimidian. <laughs> and uh, from this comic, uh, I'm looking at That's you. That's wild. Hawkeyes, both of them kill guys in this with their pointy arrows, huh? I don't think they kill anyone. They almost do. Ah, here. She says, uh, did I get him? In the eyes, Kate. Well, they're not dead. They're just blinded now, probably for life. So, <laughs> yeah, and just like, I feel like uh, that's an interesting uh, superhero tone that I don't know that we, uh, we, we have anymore. I mean, this whole Hawkeye book is pretty... S- sacrilegious iconoclastic iconoclastic's a great word for it actually yeah it's very in all aspects of it in t- both within its historical moment and kind of just reading it as you go it's s- so different from your your archetypical superhero story while still being kind of an archetypical superhero tale yeah and i love it i remember well, we will talk about the influence and legacy, I guess, a little later. Uh, the second issue also introduces a swordsman, a.k.a. Jacques Duquesne. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, the show pronounces it as, like, Jacques Duquesne. Jacques Duquesne. I don't know if that's right. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce French stuff. Um, the guy who trained Hawkeye and uh, evil circus robber. Um, and I just thought, I think his presence is kind of fun and interesting because he doesn't have a huge impact on this series, although in the next couple Hawkeye series, he has a bigger role. But... Yeah. But that's okay. But I really like that they establish him as just a part of the rogues gallery. Because going into this, Hawkeye doesn't have any rogues to his own, really. But this book is like Swordsman's One, and we have the Trenchcoat Mafia, and they're like slowly kind of building it up. Mm Mm-hmm. And we, Tracksuit Mafia, Tracksuit Dracula's, (laughs) Swordsman... Um, Wilson Fisk, I guess. He's around. Uh, Madam Mask, definitely. Oh, yeah. Um, there's one other thing I want to talk about in issue two, mm-hmm. which is the theme throughout the series. Um, all right, I'm looking at the, I think it's the second to last page of issue two. Um, it's the page with like a zillion panels on it, and it's a phone conversation between Clint and Kate. Mm-hmm. I like that Clint's also on a landline, <laughs> and Kate's uh, on her cell phone. Um, yeah, and it's a wall wall phone, too. Yeah, wall phone, landline. Um, my read on this scene has always been... Um, it's weird. Clint is establishing for Kate that despite the fact that she's like an attractive young girl, uh, he's not interested in sex with her. Mm-hmm. And when I originally... Um, read this comic, I thought that uh, Kate was bummed about that. That's how this seems to be played to me. How does the... the what, what did you get out of this scene? That... That was my read on it, but not like... I don't know. It, it's the... I 
I think it's more complicated than that. I don't think Fraction is really trying to, like, set them up, but to kind of show that she does have feelings for him. Like, it's not that there isn't anything there. Like, he's setting a very firm boundary, and she's like, yes, that's fine. But at the same time, she's kind of, like, a little sad <laughs> that, that, that that is not a possibility. But See, it doesn't feel like it's one of those setups where the character is motivated by that feeling. See, so what's interesting is when I read it this time, I actually feel like Kate is a lot more nuanced than that Reed gives her credit for. I don't think that she's sad because Hawkeye doesn't want to sleep with her. I think she's sad because he brought it up to her and she's like, uh, you dummy, I... uh." That's that wasn't even a consideration for me. <laughs> like you're mm. you're a much older guy and a mentor, and that's a gross relationship to have. Yeah, um, that was that was it's for me. That was my read for most of the issue until but, this until like this scene. I'm like, oh, does she does she kind of have feelings for him? But you know, the rest of the comic doesn't really support that too much. Um, I'm going to loop back around to this one second, but I want to mention that one of my favorite Hawkeye appearances ever was in an original graphic novel that came out a couple years after this um, called Avengers Endless Wartime. Did you ever read this? No. Um, Didn't even know it existed. Yeah, it's an original graphic novel with the Avengers. It's like um, the six from the movie and I think Wolverine and another one. Um, Mm -hmm. And and Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel. Yeah. and it's like a really fun Avengers story. And it starts off with, you see how all the Avengers get to Avengers Tower. And so Captain America just wakes up. He lives in Avengers Tower. He just like goes out from his bedroom to the conference room. Iron mm. Man lands in his robot suit on a landing pad outside. Black Widow like uh, has a private car that drives her in. And then it shows this alleyway and there's a dumpster. And then Clint Barton kind of rolls out of the dumpster across the street from Avengers Tower. And he's cover- he's wearing a bloody purple suit. He was, like, wearing, like, a nice suit. He got the shit kicked out of him. And even though he was, like, right by his office, he chose to sleep in a dumpster. And I thought that that was very funny, and that really uh, uh, continues the tone for the character that this book establishes so well. Uh Uh-huh. That comic was written by one Mr. Warren Ellis. um, Oh. A guy who's written a lot of comics that I've enjoyed, but who has been accused of doing some really bad things. And I think it's relevant to bring it up here because... Warren Ellis was a big influence on all the writers of Matt Fraction's generation. Um, uh-huh. And it was revealed that the creepy, upsetting thing he did here is exactly what Clinton and Kate are navigating. He, as a mentor, like, uh, manipulated women into trying to, uh, you know, make sexual advances at them using his position of power. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, reading it, it was so complicated this time because obviously... Um, well, not obviously. I've never seen Fraction like publicly uh, sever ties or denounce Warren Ellis, nor do I expect him or need him to. But I know that that sort of thing was happening with that comic group when this comic was being written, and that just makes this like read really questionable to me. It's almost like Fraction wants to get a pat on the back, or the characters want a pat on the back, for not having this inappropriate sexual relationship. Yeah. And even with the more generous reading, even thinking that Kate is disappointed in Clint and not that she's heartbroken about it and she's like a fawning teenage girl, mm-hmm. 
I think, how old is she supposed to be here? Like 20? She's drinking in one part, but she's rich. Rich people don't need to be 21 to drink. Um, I think she's, I think she's like 22, 23. Okay, so yeah, in her early 20s. Um, but re- regardless, that thread was one of the parts of the book that's aged weirdly. It's just like constantly asking for a cookie because it's not having a marginal guy hook up with a young girl. Because obviously yeah. men deserve to have sex with young women. Like, I don't even know uh, where this tone is coming from. It's I, so yeah. funny. It's so antiquated and funny to me. Yeah, it is. It's the bringing it front and center and kind of shining a spotlight on look at this thing we're not doing yeah that's the part that has aged really poorly yeah as opposed to that's a good way to put it you know being navigated that's such a good way to put it because i i I believe that fraction was trying to move away from those sorts of dynamics in comics and they were so prevalent then both in the stories and behind the scenes Mm -hmm. um I just don't know that this was necessarily the best way to do it. I don't know. It's still a great comic, so maybe more the fool me. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't... So for this reread, I've only re- reread the first half. And mm-hmm. yeah, most... That that for issue two is really where I felt it the most. Yeah. That tone. Every, everywhere afterwards, it kind of recedes into the background and even though that those scenes kind of inform readings of, you know, glances and, and actions and fights and all of that. Um, it, you know, it, it, it is hard to separate it, but it's no longer really there in the same way as, you know, a more melodramatic comic would be where it minds that in every single issue. I wonder if pressure was put on the creative team to have the relationship or not to have the relationship or something, and they're responding to that. I mean, that is possible. I still really like the scene in issue three where um, Hawkeye is is coming out of the one-night stand um, that he's protecting, uh, and he's just shirtless, and Kate's just like, really? (laughs) You're coming here shirtless with the abs and... And that's also really? the famous panel where he has to jump naked across the room and the old Hawkeye costume is the old, all that's uh, censoring his dong. I love it. They use that trick a bunch of... That, like, that joke was so legendary. I saw other Marvel books. There's a, a Secret Avengers comic where uh, Black Widow and Spider-Woman are at the spa and they, they, they're under similar circumstances and they're also censored out with their old costumes. <laughs> Just like <laughs> everyone wanted to be writing this book. This book was so cool. Yeah. Um, the issue where uh, Clint is having the one night stand introduces an important character to the story, which is what do we want to call her? Is she her name Cherry? Is her name? Uh... Uh, let's go. Yeah, let's go with Cherry. She changes I think her that's name. That's the name that's kind of established. Um, we find out later that's not her real name, and we find out later that's not her real name either. She's got a bunch of aliases, but yeah. she's like a femme fatale who uh, drifts in and out of Hawkeye's life. And if you were reading this comic at the time, if you were reading Avengers comics, you would see that Clint was in a relationship with Spider-Woman. So when he's having a one-night stand, you have to be like, huh, I guess sliding timeline, maybe this is like uh, before or after, or I don't know. Um, Um, It has to be... Well, 
But they resolved this because later when Spider-Woman shows up in the story, she dumps Clint for having this one-night stand. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I wonder if because these scripts were written before Marvel Now, and I believe the relationship was introduced in Marvel Now, that the one-night stand was already written before... You see what I'm saying? Before the uh, the issue establishing oh. the Spider-Woman relationship came out, and this was how they threaded the needle, is um, they had to have Clint get dumped because he was being such a putz. Yep. But, I mean, it made for a great issue, so yeah, this I is, can forgive it. This is the trick arrow issue, where uh, every so often there'll be a super close-up of a really interesting-looking trick arrow, and then they just keep on shooting them at a, in a car chase. They did this in the show, too, and it was quite fun. Mm-hmm. One, ah, I, one of the things about this specific issue that when you were talking and talking about the trick hours, arrows, it kind of clicked. I'm like, this is th- such a comic booky comic and it wears that on its sleeve, but it's also nothing like the rest it it celebrates all of the things that people love about comics that are utterly ridiculous but does it in a way that's mundane and relatable and and fun instead of kind of either making fun of it or you know abandoning it or making it super dour i think of it as um a reconstruction mm-hmm. like boomerang a boomerang arrow <laughs> boomerang arrow it always comes back yeah, but even at the beginning, they make fun of the boomerang arrow, and then we find out maybe you shouldn't have. Yeah, and th- that was a hot tone at this time, because, like, so Watchmen is a comic that's deconstructing superhero stories, showing how actually in real life having these super-powered godlike individuals would just, like, be a path to fascism. Mm-hmm. And this is the comic being like, but we would think that the world would be more fun with boomerang arrows and one-night stands and car chases. And um, yeah. they make a really great case for it, because it is really fun. Yeah. And, you know, Hawkeye, he hangs out on, on the roof and then something weird happens and everyone kind of just brushes it off because it's New York. Are you talking about when he gets kidnapped by the helicarrier? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is <laughs> this issue is the first uh, issue with the new artist, right? This is um, Lieber. Yeah. Javier Polito took, takes over for uh, the two-parter, The Tape. Where uh, Hawkeye uh, goes to Madripoor. Ah, uh, Madripoor. I, what I really like about the structure of this story so far is the first issue is about Clint and his life when he's not an Avenger, and this is like between big missions. He's living in his apartment and dealing with the mafia and having a dog. And the second mm-hmm. issue is there's this other Hawkeye, Kate. He's got a relationship with her. She's a sidekick. It's kind of weird. The third issue is all about the trick arrows and what it's like when two Hawkeyes kick ass together. But then this is the issue. These This story, this two-parter, is like um, about Hawkeye the spy, Hawkeye the assassin, which is how he's introduced in the Avengers movies. Yeah, and and also how he was originally introduced, I think, in Tales to Astonish. Well, in Tales to Astonish, he is... Um, an archer at the circus who's seduced by Black Widow into doing her bidding because he's like, yeah, I want to get some from Black Widow. I'll, uh, I'll be morally compromised for some ass. Um, <laughs> and then gets redeemed very quickly and becomes a major superhero. Mm. Um, the Madripoor story is also fun because I feel like uh, I've seen way more. I've read more Madripoor stories than I need to. Yeah. I feel like we've really wrung all the blood out of that stone. For those who don't know, Madripoor is just basically villains incorporated the nation. 
And it's like ambiguously kind of like half Singapore, half Madagascar, I would say. It's like a autonomous island nation. Yeah, like the Cayman Islands mixed, like the idea of what are the Cayman Islands mixed with Dubai look of, yeah, Dubai and Singapore. And, you know, there I'm sure there are a bunch of politics around it that you dig in, you dig into the, the depiction enough and it probably gets a little skeevy in terms of like, why is it here? Why do we think of it this way? All of those, those good, heady literary uh, analysis, but for now, Madripoor is just the place where all the villains get together in a fancy schmancy hotel and bid on uh, top secret information because why not? And I actually think that this issue does better than a lot of those maybe more questionable Madripoor stories. Like, the sequence where Clint has to pretend to be a cab driver and then in doing so <laughs> he like learns his way around the city and who everyone is. Mm-hmm. That was amazing. That was like, I've never seen that in anything before where he just accidentally becomes a cab driver and he's like, yeah, actually this works. And yeah. And he's, he's kind of bad at it too. Yeah, he's kinda, and that's, and it's so in line with the tone of the series, right? He kind of stumbles into the situation, like muddles through. It doesn't do a great job, but then be through serendipity that ends up uh, serving his plans. Yeah. Um, and the story also is what establishes Madame Mask, who's going to be a big character for the whole story. Yeah. Though less on the Clint Barton side. Yeah, because um, this is the story where um, uh, where Kate kidnaps Madame Mask and steals her mask. <laughs> Pretends to be her, uses all her money, and then makes sure that she doesn't get the tape. Yeah. Whoopsies. And, like, at the end of the story, the tape was, like, a blind, right? Like, it wasn't a real thing? Yeah, it. the tape was supposedly of Hawkeye killing someone, uh, and it was... You know, leaked and you know they got you know went on sale they have to go back and recover it uh, and all of this the recovery and everything is all just a, a smokescreen because shield released it in order to protect the identities of some other people and so they made it seem like avengers went and killed it and i don't even think they needed to uh get the tape back but they needed to make it look like they needed to get the tape back right um, real silly spy stuff. I think this is one of the first times Nick Fury shows up. Uh, eye patch, African American Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. Um, the next issue I have, I have the omnibus hardcover of this series, which is lovely, and I can't recommend it enough. And the next issue in mine is um the Hurricane issue, issue seven. So in mine, first is. Young Avengers number six, which I skipped because uh, I don't care enough about it. It was fine, it, but I didn't feel the need to read it for this. Then, yes, it's the Hurricane issue number seven. They moved it up in the trade release. Um, oh, the Young Avengers presents number six with uh, by Alan Davis drawing, right? Ye, uh, I don't know. I just left the... I just left the the trade. I'm not going back. I don't want Comicsology to crash on me. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's like some not the best Alan Davis art. I like Alan Davis no. a lot, and it's not his best work. Yeah, it's uh, fine. It's you know, it's it's an issue. But we're not here to talk about Young Avengers Prevent Presents. No, we're here to talk not. about the Hurricane issue. Well, the Hurricane issue, but also the the actual Hurricane. Um, Elias, where were you when Hurricane Sandy hit in October of 2012? I, I was in. Park Ridge, and we were thankfully mostly spared 
the power outages and the trees down. We had we had trees down and we had there was some flooding and and power outage, but we were thankfully pretty good. But like a mile down the road, flooding houses, people didn't have power for three weeks. School was shut for a whole week because the basement had flooded because the Hackensack River overflowed. Oh, you're still in school. You're still in high school. Yeah, I was still in high school. Um, so I was living with the, on my friend's floor in summer of 2012, but by October, we li- we have an apartment now in Washington Heights mm-hmm. and I'm commuting down from Washington Heights to the comic store. And, um, we were, and Sandy hit, um, the weekend before Halloween and we were throwing like an early Halloween party. And what ended up happening was because of the hurricane, um, every guest got stuck in our apartment are not a big enough apartment for so, so long. <laughs> um and a bunch of people couldn't go back to work uh there was a one point someone brought over uh like a boy to have a one night stand with which turned into a week long stand because he had nowhere to go and he wasn't a very good roommate oh geez just like a real i'm in my 20s and having drama uh by hurricane sandy stuff but so then had seeing this issue get turned around so quickly is like incredible my my one friend from the comic store lived all the way at the southern tip of um, of uh, Coney Island. I think that's Seagate, right? Mm, I don't know Coney Island that well. My mom grew up in Coney Island, but I don't know it as well as she'd like me to. Um, yeah. But my friend, our friend from the comic store worked there, and we didn't hear from him for like three days uh, afterwards. We started getting worried about him, and then when he showed up, his like he hadn't showered, his hair was a little longer, and he was had like a beard, and he had been like living in a house with his elderly father, uh, helping take care of him, and like FEMA was there giving them food, and he came back to the store to tell us he was alive and to charge his phone. Oh wow! Yeah, we were like, uh, and what's funny about that is um, they go out to Long Island in this, and like. Yeah, the, the Long Island, South Brooklyn got like really hit by the hurricane, and they, I think yeah. they do a great job at capturing like a specific historical moment in like a silly superhero story. Mm-hmm. And they take some time to rag on Jersey. Well, but then they take some time to say Jersey rules. Yeah. Um, I'll take it. I'll take it. I believe the um the Kate sequences. This is the first Annie Wu art. I believe so. There's one panel yeah. of um, yeah. Kate angrily pointing while she's wearing a silly hat and her eyes are like in heavy shadow and that could only be drawn by Annie Wu. That's such Annie Wu shit. <laughs> I love Annie Wu, um, but she's one of those like, I don't know, like confident introverts who are really like uh, intimidating to me. What do you mean? Just like people who uh, are, are happy being alone and then you're just like, oh, hey. And then they don't make like a big effort to engage with you or anything because they're just happy by themselves. And they, they're not being impolite to you, but they, they don't need you. And I don't know. That, I, mm. I need everyone to like me all the time. So that feeling, I'm like, I, I start sweating. I'm like, how can we navigate this? I need you, but you don't need me. This is breaking the social contract. Yeah, I've, I, I feel that. Um. But the, the, the Sandy story is excellent. And again, it's like um, Clint is helping an old guy uh, get away from the hurricane and maybe sell, save some uh, family pictures. And Kate is at an ill-advised wedding that gets ruined that she has to like go get medicine and food for everybody. She gets hmm. clobbered by beans. Beans. Yeah, and that Jersey... enemy. That Jersey rules panel is so good. Just like... 
perfect story. Couldn't be better, I would say. Except that issue six, which is after issue seven in my trade. Uh-huh. Um, because issue seven is um, October, the end of October. And uh, issue seven, we're now in December. A lot more uh, telling us where we are in time than Marvel usually likes to do. Uh, well, because you had to situate it in a very specific moment. Because if you're going to do the the Sandy issue, you got to say, you know, everyone knows when Sandy happened. And then um, issue six is um, is the Christmas issue. Yeah. Elias... And it also is playing with time on purpose for the Christmas issue. Right, because they're doing like a, count, a, a countdown to Christmas. Um, yeah. But Elias, let me tell you, uh, issue six, this Christmas issue, is my favorite issue in the Hawkeye series, and one of my, if not my very favorite Marvel comic issue. It's really Chris Ware-esque. Yeah, it is really Chris Ware-esque. Um, so many tiny panels, lots of insets, and it definitely also is, you get the sense that when you have a big panel... And then you've got a bunch of the smaller ones underneath. It's like you, you kind of feel like they just zoomed in on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, but that's not what happened. These were definitely redrawn. Right. Well, and and he finds such a, like, uh, there's the, he draws Clint's entire, uh, like, TV setup with, like, a VCR and shit because it's 2012 and apparently people still have VCRs. Well, Clint Barton still has VCR. Yeah, that's true. He likes drinking coffee but doesn't even own a mug. Yep. He's always just drinking out of the coffee pot. But, uh, That's just Clint. But who knew that, like, drawing a VCR could be such gorgeous art? Um, and the, uh, the fight with Wolverine and Spider-Man and Hawkeye against AIM is so fun and funny. I like that there's a, um, an Occupy Wall Street joke followed by, uh, that panel of Spider-Man wishing a happy Hanukkah, which I've used every year since. <laughs> Um, I, I could go on. The the barbecue on the roof is so funny. It's so funny that Tony Stark's like, I will buy you a new TV. And Clint's like, no, 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 you'd have to fix the one I have. We have we have to cut all these wires. We got to figure it out. And Tony's just like, why? Uh, this is also the issue that has the first appearance of the joke where everyone thinks his name is Hawk Guy. Which became... I mean, that's just his name now. Well, yeah, and that became his name colloquially. And I remember um, every Comic-Con I would go to after this, there were all the Hawk guys would be wearing one of the, like, the T-shirts and they'd put on a bunch of like Band-Aids and bruise makeup. <laughs> and then you get together and get all the Hawk guys. Yeah. Um, one of the other really fun things about all of these pages is there are very few that are full like there's a lot going on, but there's always enough like white space in between, like where a panel could have been or a panel could have been extended, and in most comics would have, it's just left kind of empty, and it it creates a whole different flow to the 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 well the the story. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and um, it really kind of like implies the heavier and heavier snow. Yes. Uh. There's also the panel that introduces, I forget his name, but the uh, the head of the tracksuit Draculas. I don't think he has a name. Well, they're all At in, least not here. They're all in dark tracksuits, and he's in like an all-white matching tracksuit. Yeah. And the first page where he shows up, he's just like an old guy with an oxygen tank. He is so scary looking. He really... Especially because he doesn't... No, he's, he says a lot, but none of it's attributed to him. It's just floating in this... this black circle with white text like he's Morpheus from Sandman yeah 
It's like an other this otherworldly boss. Um. So. Th- Whereas the tracksuit mafias or tracksuit Dracula seem like you could walk down the street and there they are. Um. Yeah, he adds like an otherworldly superhero scare to it. Um, the last page of this issue is Clint standing in front of the building, the huge panel in the snow, right? No, there's one more page after that. So it's I want the the. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you after that page, it immediately jumps to issue. What issue is this? Seventeen. Yeah, issue seventeen, where uh, which we'll read for the next episode. So I won't discuss so much here. But where um, there's a flashback to Clint watching a Christmas or like a wintertime special with some kids. Huh. Um, just that, that issue immediately starts here. Really? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, uh, because the last page of this is, well, the the kids from, from his neighbors coming in because, you know, he shot out their, um, their satellite, satellite dish. dish. Yeah, so the final page is him inviting them to his place to watch. Um, and he's just like, he's content, he's happy. He's like, I'm not going anywhere. It's just him staring out of the, the window as we zoom out and let the snow settle. Um, well, I'm flipping through this amazing issue that's the Winter Friends special, but we're not talking about it now. Next time. Next time. Um, I love the cover of issue eight that has the, um, the like, artifacts that make it look weathered and aged. Mm-hmm. It looks like an old like pulp, a pulp cover. novel yeah. cover. Um, and there's these inserts in this issue of covers of a romance comic, like a 1950s Patsy Walker style romance comic. Yeah. And this is where all of his, his former girlfriends and current girlfriends and, and ex-wife. Wait. Oh, right. Bobby Morse. I keep thinking it's Sue Storm. <laughs> Why? Because she's blonde? Uh, the blue. Yeah, blonde and blue. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bobby Morse. Bobby who, Morse. Who gets superpowers shortly after this story. Oh. She gets a Captain oh. America blood transfusion. Oh. Interesting. I think that was a Bendis story. Um, oh. Okay. I, the dresses in this comic are out of control. Like, uh, the Jessica Drew dress that has the colors <laughs> of her costume, but not the patterns, is so cool. It's it's very mod fashion. Yeah, yeah, everything. This whole issue is, is mod style. Yeah. And it's just mostly it's the art it's these small vignettes broken up by the the romance covers which is a a fun conceit for an issue because all of those old covers you know they would especially when it was uh these are homaging both romance and you know crime horror anthologies where you know the title page is the first page of the comic and but then we cut forward and sometimes they're not you know, even done in the same way, but here they're used to kind of set up what's coming next. And you just have like, just sit with the anticipation. Yeah. Um, until it finally kind of like undercuts that anticipation too, by, by throwing you a a curveball. Iconoclast is what you said, right? Yeah. This is the issue where I think we take a step beyond Iconoclast and now we're getting really experimental. Like for sure. We never really learn much about, Penny's actual life story. We hear some details here and there in dialogue, but like I'm looking at the mystery girl uh, number question mark um, cover, mm-hmm. and it says, "I was a redhead car thief. My father, my fiend. Do you know the way to anywhere?" And <laughs> which is a very funny uh, cover, but like 
Oh, she was she was a teenage runaway apparently. Like there's no other place in the story where we learn about her her life. And this is like not even literally happening this cover. This is like a metaphor. Yeah. That, it's that, possible that like and as with most of the details she gives, we don't know how much is true, how much is an impression, how much is, you know, kind of right. But but the issue uses like the idiom of comics and also the MacGuffin is they're looking for a valuable comic collection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, they're looking for, I think, a safe, but she has a valuable, she has a bunch of comics, and then it turns out that the comics were basically worthless, but the, the order mattered. Right. Well, they, yeah, there was, they were valuable because they told you the, the way to get into the safe and cl- ruins it all. Uh, yeah. But, like, uh, yeah, this issue is where it gets, uh, he's using the, like, idiom and the expression of comics by having all these old covers and like if you're a comics fan and you kind of like get the genre stuff that he's aping through font choices and through the um how much the comics cost and the different little uh, logos that they stamp fake logos stamped on them Mm -hmm. like all of that is doing storytelling and i feel like even if you're not like well versed and very educated on comics history it's evocative in a very like artistically satisfying way Mm mm-hmm um, the end of this issue is also where the plot kicks into full gear because, like, the um, all the criminals of New York are meeting, and I really like this. I feel like Marvel has done this as well in the last couple of years. Zdarsky's yeah, uh, done a little bit of it in in Hawk, uh, Hawkeye, in Daredevil, and 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 it's worked, but not in the same way. They're, those are always like the power moves, and this is kind of like the underworld's conference. Yeah, but, like, I like... You definitely see um, these Italian stereotype-looking guys who are supposed to be the mafia. Mr. Negative is here, and he's, like, way out of place because um, he is a photo-negative and, like, a monster. And... Mm-hmm. And uh, Tombstone's here. He's also, like, sticks out. There's, like, a bunch of cool Marvel mob boss villains show up, and their plan is to hire the, um, like... A legendary assassin to take him out, and I think yeah, that, like, and, uh, mm-hmm. that assassin shows up in the show. Like that character has a legacy, right? Uh, I have not seen the character after this that I remember, but the impression from this comic that we get of the assassin—I think what what's he called? The clown. Yeah, I think he's just called the clown. Yeah, is he's... one for the ages. Yeah, it's seated really subtly through here, and by the time, like, it, yeah, he's, he's like, punching way above his class in terms of villain just because of how scary and restrained they are with his presentation. Yeah, and the final panel, like, when you look at it, you think, you know, it's a target with an arrow going to it. No, it's an eyeball with a tear. Yeah, because he's but a But cr- it's also he, both. He's a sad clown. Yeah, por que no los dos. Yeah. Um... Now, the next issue is called Girls, and it's about Clint's relationship with the the important woman in his life. Yeah, while also being kind of the B-side to the romance cover issue. Yeah, it's, well, it's giving you a little bit more, like, actual events in a story instead of, like, implied vibes. Yes. Um, but this is also where kind of the mi- mystery of the character... That is Cherry or Penope. Penope. <laughs> Darlene Penny. Penelope Wright. Yes. Is, you know, both revealed and also kind of seeded more. 
like she she's kind of the 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 sexy mystery you know in the when you you hear about it in the crime story person the, well the femme fatale walks in you don't know anything but here it's more of the kind of the realist mystery like who is this person we need to be suspicious what are all the details like what what are we missing well and clint is like a trashy circus performer turned petty thief turned superhero. But, like, Black Widow, Spider-Woman, and Mockingbird are all, like, professional trained secret agents and assassins turned superheroes. Obviously, they're better at solving mysteries than this putz. Oh, for sure. Uh, Hawkeye doesn't even try. No, he's not even interested. Um, I want to give a small shout-out to uh, David Aha's rendering of Grand Central Station, one of my favorite buildings in New York, and it's drawn so gorgeously here. Is really pretty. The the minimalist style uh, really emphasizes the the uh, board with all the times of trains and the clock at the information booth in the middle and the big windows. Just like Grand Central has doesn't look this cool in real life. Yeah. Um. But I wanted for this issue. Can we go through the the titles of the different sections based on the different girls? Sure. So first we got Natasha, the work wife. I think mm-hmm. that, that that captures the relationship pretty accurately, don't you think? Yeah, I think it does. And it captures the uh, vibe of the, the vignette, too. Yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure in modern Marvel comics, the, the vibe is that the two of them are, like, uh, best friends and partners who have been through everything, but have never been romantically involved. Yeah, or in, want to be. In the... In the comics, of course, like I was saying before, uh, Hawkeye was seduced by Black Widow in both of their first appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I feel like that that looks like a... That's just like a bump on the road. Yeah, and probably also played a little bit into the... He was a stupid carny. Yeah. Is, and then uh, Black Widow was clear... Was, was using him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they seem like much more established now. Um, the next section is called Bobby, the ex-wife. And again, that makes sense. She's literally mm-hmm. his ex-wife. Do you know the circumstances under which their wedding was nullified? No, but I, I know that here is where they officially get got divorced, which means... Uh, it didn't stick earlier. <laughs> because he's been seeing many people in between. Yeah, so... Well, that's because in the 80s, during West Coast Avengers, uh, Mockingbird, Bobby Morse, was blown mm-hmm. up and killed. And so Clint has been operating as if she was dead for a long time. But then, in the crossover event Secret Invasion, we find out that uh, Mockingbird was not killed. That was a Skrull uh, posing as her for complicated and convoluted purposes. But so Hawkeye has been mm. operating as if they're not married for a long time. Their wedding and their, their marriage is ostensibly over. But yeah, the reason they have to sign the paperwork now is because there was like scroll interference. So the divorce didn't stick. Uh, I just gotcha. think that's, that's just funny. And I actually think this comic does a great job at, a, at a capturing that weird feeling. Yeah, for sure. So then the next section is called Kate. And under that, it says Kate. Mm-hmm. This is the one of the only parts that really kind of like, I don't know, I felt, I sneered at the end of this issue. Because, like, it seems like it thinks it's saying something by that, but I don't, I'm not feeling it, are you? I mean, I think it's trying to, 
approach all of and and show all of the women currently in his life in one way or another that like matter towards the story I guess in the, in the superhero way and Kate fit, fits that but are, are, are you taking specific objection to her just being called Kate instead of Hawkeye or partner I, well or... I, I feel like the book is so smugly being like Kate she's just Kate as if it's really simple but before now the book's been showing us that it's complicated Mm. And I guess this is their way of, of saying, no, it's simple. I just don't think that this is doing a good job at countering what I think it's trying to counter. Like before when they teased our Kate and Clint having romantic feelings for each other. And then by saying Kate, Kate, it's just like, no, no, she's just Kate. She's not his uh, one of these girlfriends or wives or anything. That's not what she is to him. But then on the bottom of the page, she's standing in front of a big Lolita poster. Oh, yeah. Just like... There's such mixed messages being sent with what they want us to be the takeaway, and I'm sure they have an artistic intention, and I'm sure it's noble, and I agree with their intentions, but I think that this plot line is like, and this delivery of it's the weakest part of the first half of this comic. Mm. Because then the last section is Jessica, the friend girl. And... Friend, mm-hmm. like I feel like friend girl is the kind of thing like a, a twerpy type of man says. Nobody says friend girl. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I didn't. That part I didn't really. Get. I guess it was it was one of those. They're trying to be cute. In he he was trying to be cute in almost all of them. Like the ex wife is just is fairly so you know is fairly self explanatory, but. Yeah, I wonder if this was also his way of kind of just being like, you really had to do this to me? Yeah, well, and I liked her breaking up with him. I like um, most of the way... I like I, I like uh, Jessica comes across pretty uh, strong in this, but, like, there's just a weird dynamic. So Jessica slaps him. She slaps him again. She walks into the apartment... And then she's about to slap him a third time when he grabs her arm kind of brusquely and says, don't, I get that you're mad, but you're not allowed to do that anymore. And just like the gender coding of this is so weird because Mm -hmm. so Clint cheats on Jessica. She's allowed to hit him twice, but not a third time because that's out of line. But Jessica has fucking superpowers and Clint does it. Her slapping him around like this is not a weak woman, strong man situation. She's got the proportional strength of a spider. Yeah, I guess in terms of the the gender dynamics there too is, especially in media, we are more willing to accept, for whatever reason, when a woman slaps a man, or like hits it, like that is okay, depending on the situation. Like that is an appropriate response. Whereas with, you know, if if he were to have slapped her for doing the, the same thing, that would have been way out of line, no matter the situation. And I guess this is kind of her, the them kind of trying to navigate those those dynamics and Fraction trying to navigate those dynamics without really like interrogating them too much. I mean, I, be- I Matt Fraction is not a guy who thinks too little about things. If anything, the opposite. I think he was very thoughtful about how he was portraying this. But for whatever reason, the gender dynamics of it now just like read poorly to me it's like um like i think that the, he's saying that uh it, isn't it a double a sex is double standard that uh women mm-hmm. can hit men but men can't hit women but then he has her do it and then there's like the whole superpower dynamic i like this just um it's pretty muddled 
Yeah, it's pretty muddled, and this entire issue, while really fun and has gorgeous art and funny lines and everything, um, is this is the one that works the least for me in this half of the story. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, I don't know. It, it worked for me very well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, when you were talking, I'm like, those were definitely some of the bits that, you know, made me go, mm, I don't know. I don't know how well that was that was handled. Maybe uh, one day I'll pitch a um, like a feminist revisiting of Matt Fraction superhero work to women write about comics or something. I think that would play well there. I think it would. Yeah. But I mean, the issue ends on maybe one of the most impactful moments in the series. Yeah, I have thoughts about this. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, did we we cut to um, Clint on the roof with a tiny, tiny dog chewing a bone. <laughs> Gil is grilling, or Grills is grilling. Um, and, you know, Hawkeye forgets that he had learned Grill's name and didn't call him Gil. Uh, he says, it's Gil. Off, off panel, which is he Gil? He looks up, huh? Where'd you come? And then Gil is killed by the clown. By the clown, and that ends the issue. Yeah, very dramatic issue. Um, and I have a weird feeling about this. In like the meta, in the story, it's it's perfect. It's scary. It's uh, impactful. I'm sad because I really like Gil at this point. This weird clown who just assassinated him and said, I came from hell is like obviously a very intriguing character. Mm-hmm. Now here's my thing. Um, before this comic, in the Marvel 616 universe, Clint Barton Hawkeye wore superhero costumes. Famously, the one that was covering his junk where he had like the purple chain mail with the pointy mask and the H on his head. Mm-hmm. And then more recently before this comic, he was Ronin, so he was wearing like a black and gold ninja suit. Yeah. In this comic, they make him look more like the movies. He's just wearing like a t-shirt with the little arrow logo on it. And, and he, he's like, um, this was the beginning of superhero casual, which started exploding yes. after this. But a big part of the reason why this clown can come to Hawkeye's house and kill his neighbors is that Hawkeye doesn't wear a mask anymore. <laughs> They're, right? Like, that's the point of the mask, narratively speaking, is so that the villains don't come to your house and kill your people. Yeah. And, and there was never a scene where, so, like, you never see Nick Fury be like, you shouldn't wear a mask anymore. And you don't see Hawkeye say, masks are dumb. I'm not going to wear one anymore. But he pays a big price for going superhero casual in this. And I feel like after this, a lot of superheroes uh, lose their secret identity. They stop wearing masks entirely. And this keeps happening again and again. And that's why we have the secret identity, guys. So that Gil wouldn't get shot. But sometimes but sometimes it's it's a good story move to have the ca- hero no longer have a secret identity. Yeah. But that's a, you know, you can't put that genie back in the bottle unless you're Daredevil and you can put that genie back in the bottle seven times through amazing retcons. Oh my god. Every retcon imaginable. So the next issue, and this is our last uh, two-parter, I believe. This is your man, right? This is your boy Frank. This is my Frank. Francesco Francavia. Um Yes. And, like, immediately, his art fits in just fine. It's not, like, um, a total departure, but, like, it's so clearly him, right? For sure. He, he So he draws, and I believe he colors himself here. He does. I don't, I don't think Colin, yeah. And you can always tell he really likes 
solid colors, like using very minimal two or three, and then using those other colors to accent each other mm, that's, instead yeah. of having kind of shading and, and whatnot. Very well put. I, I absolutely love it. I guess a big through line is the panel layouts are actually pretty similar. So I think Fraction's probably being specific about the panels in the script. Yeah. And you can tell also, you know, in the present, when they're when they're in the the building, everything is perfectly squared, it's even, it's digital, it's it's you know Geometric. Exact. Yeah, geometric. And then when we get to the flashbacks of Kazi, who is the the clown, um, it's all every panel is rough and and wiggly and you know, because yeah, it was unstable. His whole life was unstable and built in, in flames. And I love the way Francovia translates, you know, all of these kind of like abstract concepts into the visuals of his art. Um, he's not, he, he doesn't really care what a page looks like. He'll do whatever it takes to, to represent things. And it's so nice. Yeah, so this issue is, uh, like you said, it's a it's an origin of sorts for Kazi the clown, but mm-hmm. but the origin's very sparse. Like I feel like at the end of this, we know him about as well as we knew Penny. Yeah, we we have the broad strokes. Cherry, we whatever. kind of know some of the things that he's done and how he does it, and it's interesting to to see. But it's like unimportant the de- the details of the why. We just needed to know kind of get the general impression well it's like a pulpy genre thing he was from eastern europe and there was some sort of conflict there and that kind of built him up to the man that he was today through tragedy and violence Mm -hmm. but then what makes this issue really sing is that in the present day uh kazi is at a party like for a rich new york socialite and kate bishop's there too i believe it's her dad's party yes um and um Again, here's a scene where the Kate being attracted to an older guy. They like very specific to uh, say his age, which is 34. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love about Kate in this issue is this is the first time you see Kate pursuing romance, and she's doing it on her own terms. Like she's been pursued earlier, whether she wants it or not, and here she she wants it. She kisses him, and then she goes Hawkeye out, and then she just bounces. <laughs> Which ends up being a huge mistake, of course, because she's talking. She just kissed her enemy, her who's she's gonna fight later. Yeah, and who's about to kill the best griller in the building? Yeah, Gill, the only guy with a gill, grill, the only grill with a gill. Um, yeah, but like uh, this is the issue where we see Kate by herself, uh, not for the first time, but like where I I feel like Kate is uh, much more assertive, and she's less of just like cool person and more and she has like wants and needs and she seems more motivated to me after this issue yeah i think the i think fraction may have finally kind of settled on what he wants to do with kate independent of clint because for the first half it's showing how they work together and the second half is going to be how they work apart yeah and i believe you had to kind of differentiate them in a way that is meaningful and this far into the series um the the young avengers run from marvel now is already out and so uh, there's a couple of people writing kate and i'm sure there's conversations being had about how to characterize her but like we're really zooming in on it throughout this series which is fun to see Mm-hmm. 
And now we got to talk about mm -hmm. the The final issue. The most famous issue from this series. If I can. Lucky the pizza dog. Pizza is my business. Oh, yes, that is what it was called. Um, If I can um, promote another comics podcast that I enjoy on. on the uh, on War Rocket Ajax, Chris Sims and uh, Matt Wilson's long running podcast, mm-hmm. they're they're doing a thing where they rank every comic story ever, and they ranked this issue, Hawkeye number eleven, Pizza is my business, and I believe they ranked it at number ninety eight or ninety nine, just behind Dracula motherfucker, and wow, it's one of the, so they consider this issue one of the hundred best comics ever told of any length or style yeah yeah you agree there's no arguing there so what and what the issue is is um it's about the day after gill is killed but it's all from the perspective of lucky the pizza dog and so most of the dialogue you see is uh blurred out with a couple of words that maybe the dog could recognize like his name Mm -hmm. um and just enough to give us the the impression but then, and instead of a lot of word balloons, what this issue has is smell balloons. <laughs> where uh, you see what Lucky is smelling and the associations that he has, and thus how he solves the mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I mean, this issue is so visual, it's so hard to capture. There's, like a, the, um, there's the moment that he, you, you realize that the dog realizes that Gil is dead because... Um, He's he's X'd out and there's a question mark next to his smell. Yeah. Um, that little dog is that Gil's dog? Is that what we're supposed to be led to believe? Um, no. I think the little dog is someone else. Is is the old lady's dog? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But just a dog in the in the building. Um. Yeah, but, like, so there's, like, floor plans and blueprints, and uh, Lucky is trying to figure out who, who is bringing which smell, and uh, he knows that Gil and Clint were both there, but he knows that there's a third mystery person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's trying to solve the mystery, but he keeps on finding pizza, and then the little dog wants to uh, go at it, presumably doggy style, uh, <laughs> which we don't see because it's, uh, a <laughs> it's, uh, it's blessedly censored. Um, yeah, the 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 impact of this issue, I think, is best captured by um, an issue of a very underrated series, which is Hawkeye versus Deadpool. Okay, or maybe just Hawkeye and Deadpool, but it's a Hawkeye Deadpool miniseries. And yeah. very early on, um, Clint busts out Pizza Dog, and he's like, "Come on, Deadpool, we got a mystery to solve." And then Deadpool's like, wait, hang on, what's happening? And then all the uh, the word bubbles turn into these smell bubbles, and it's drawn just like this issue. And then he's uh, Deadpool's <laughs> like, so is the dog solving the mystery? This is all too artsy for me. <laughs> Which I think is a great Deadpool joke, right? Because he can see the panels, and he's and he's uh-huh. like, I'm, and he's confused, and he's like, I'm Deadpool, I'm stupid, and I like stupid books. <laughs> uh, which is true, but like. Yeah, everyone was aping on this style. This just like this co- this issue of this comic blew everybody's minds. I don't know what more can be said about it than that that hasn't been said. It's everyone on the team working in tandem, but mostly showing off um, David Aha's work and you know, Colling- Hollingsworth, 
Um, who lettered this issue? Was it... Yeah, that's a great question. Was it Chris Iliopoulos, or did I think uh-huh really... do the lettering too? Yeah, so I, I wrote a note of this, actually. I'm so glad I wrote a note to myself. Um, it's... It was probably Iliopoulos. Mm-hmm. Frank Via Colors himself. No, uh, yeah, this is Iliopoulos. Uh, David only uh, letters... Uh, colors one issue and it's he letters one issue and it's uh, towards the end yeah so the reason i brought that up is because it starts kind of looking you know normal comic font like you know it had been in the in the rest of the book but then it as it zooms out it all looks handwritten instead of the usual cleaner you know digital lettering god i love and i love that yeah you talking Mm -hmm. about lettering is my favorite thing i I see it You're, you're right it, uh, it zooms out of the words like we were close to the words floating in the air. And that's not yeah. a thing that people can do. Comics are good. Yeah. And it, it gives it that extra feeling of, well, now we're in the dog's world. So even the words look and feel different than when the humans are listening to them, even if we recognize them as the same words. Like it just has a different texture to it. Yeah, a different shape. Yeah. We're, um, we're seeing the world from a dog's eye view. Um. And the issue ends with a really dramatic confrontation between Clint and Kate, but we don't know what really gets said because we're still seeing from Lucky's perspective. Yeah, and we don't know what preceded it. We just know that they went to a, um, you know, presumably some party or funeral or by the looks wedding of it. or probably. Oh, it's probably Gil's funeral. Yeah, it looks like Gil's funeral. He's wearing a black suit. Yeah. Um. And um. And tonally, what a good... It's like, uh, at the time, we didn't know that this was going to be the middle of the series, precisely. But, like, what a good shifting of the book, because it's been... Uh, you know, it's funny, but it's been getting heavier and heavier, and a really likable guy just died. Uh, Kate and Clint are having friction. Clint's having friction with just about everyone in his life. And so the issue ends with uh, Kate packs her quiver, she packs her bags, she packs up Lucky the Pizza Dog, she gets into a convertible, and she drives to California. Mm-hmm. And... That is where we're going to pick up next time as we read the back half of this excellent comic. Yep. There will be one additional issue because it starts with the annual and then we're going 12 to the end. Yeah. Or I guess I guess actually two more issues because uh, 12 to 22. Yeah. Wow. And we've been yeah. talking about this a while. And um, this comic is like, a, even though I don't think it's like perfect and sacrosanct I, I obviously have some criticisms of it i think that the uh the gender politics of the day read really differently now but just like damn if this isn't one of the best comics anyone has ever written and drawn huh yeah it's not it's not a sacrosanct comic uh it's irreverent it, it's nice it's nice to be able to to not nice to be able to poke holes in it but approaching it with critique in mind instead of just being like oh it's perfect no notes no there are notes but at the same time, that makes the work kind of stick around longer in my mind. I guess... Uh, I could read this this book front and back over and over and over again. I love it that much. I guess if they went for a more conventional style, it probably... It could have been perfect, right? Like, they're, they're both doing such good... They're at the height of their powers doing such good work, but they didn't do an easy thing. They, they did a hard thing, and it doesn't always work exactly 
for the uh, for what they're trying to do. But like, it's because they take the risk that it's not good. It's great. It could have been yes. good and uh, perfectly good, but instead, it's wonderfully great. <laughs> I think that that should be the last word we have on on this first half. Then, so where can they find you? On the larger interwebs. Uh, if you're looking for me to talk about uh, comics other than Hawkeye, such as X-Men, I write about those things on multiversitycomics.com. It's a pretty great website. And I also have been reviewing Attack on Titan, which I think is the greatest Anakin Skywalker origin story ever committed to film or writing. Elias. Well, there, oh, and uh, that many. <laughs> and uh, I suppose I should mention my Twitter handle, which is at rambling underscore moose. Um... You can find me there, and you can find me on Tumblr at ramblingmoose.tumblr.com. Elias, what about you? What's your impact on the internet? Well, I am on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Um, I've fallen out of a window enough times for that name to be mine, uh, and I will fight anyone else who tries to claim it. I'm not fighting uh, you. <laughs> you can also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com, where we are... Uh, midway through my summer TV binge and probably at the tail end of my summer comics binge of looking at early 2000s Batman. Huh. It's a very weird era. Yeah, there was that Beware the Batman show where he has where Katana is his sidekick instead of Robin. Oh, no, no, no. I'm looking at the comics. No, my TV show is, is Babylon 5. I'm, I'm at the end. I'm almost there. Oh, well, the, the, that comic, uh, the early 2000s comics are fun, too. There's the Brubaker stuff when he's doing, like, Catwoman and bringing back Slam Bradley. I like Batman. Oh, I didn't know Slam Bradley was there. I'm excited for that. Oh, it's good stuff. Good stuff. All well, right. if you want that, you can go to Multiversity. But if you want more Hawkeye, we will see you next time for that. Excelsior. <laughs>